preach the word in season preach the word out of season preach the word with great patience and instruction preach with patience preach with patience and instruction The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the Scriptures and let them speak. Well, let's uh, open our Bibles to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and apologize up front. I was actually hoping to get some uh, notes to you guys, and uh, uh, today we're going to be covering a lot of information. I'm also going to apologize because I'm not going to cover everything that I I want to cover or everything that uh, you may have questions about or even everything that I have questions about, Uh, but we're going to work our way through this uh, section of Scripture and um, uh, hopefully uh, give us uh, some helpful uh, information along the way that we can apply to our lives and, uh, and really help uh, make sense of uh, all that's going on around us. We're in uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, and uh, really we've been talking about our relationship as believers uh, to the state. What is our relationship uh, to the government? And we understand that we're citizens of, of heaven Uh, We have a heavenly citizenship. Our our king is in heaven. Our king is coming back. Our king owns the world that we live in. And uh, often uh, that can maybe even create in our hearts uh, this tension uh, between the world that we see and the the world uh, that's promised to come. And we may ask questions like, what about my heavenly citizenship? If we're submitting to every human institution, doesn't that give too much control over to the state And doesn't that give them the impression that they're in charge? And where does submission to the state stop? Uh, Because if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. And uh, once they gain power over a certain area, they don't seem to give it back. And are we some kind of slaves to the state that we live in? And uh, where does the the state fall in uh, the order of priorities? Uh, We weren't just told that we were uh, a holy nation. We're this people of God's own possession. We're, We're people who are new. We're aliens. We're strangers in the world that we live in. And in practice, it may seem like we've been handed over to a wicked and adulterous nation and that we've become the possession of the state. And how am I supposed to subject myself to a nation that blatantly dishonors God? Is there a place for rebellion against the state when it disregards the authority of God? And how are we supposed to think about all of this? And this is where the the rest of the passage of 1 Peter uh, chapter 2 really gives us some help uh, because our submission to the state does not cancel out our heavenly citizenship, and uh, we're not to submit to the state in a way that surrenders our heavenly citizenship, but honors it. And I hope that I can show you what I mean in 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's uh, take a look. I'll uh, start at verse 13 and just read down to verse 17. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 13. It says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Why don't you bow with me for a word of prayer? 
Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and uh, Father, we pray that you would open up your word to us. Help us to understand the things that are written here. Now, Father, help us as uh, those who belong to you, those who believe in you, those who trust in you. Now, Father, that we would uh, understand what it looks like to live in submission to you and submission to the government over us as well. Now, Father, I pray that uh, you would help us to to really uh, make sure that, that we're not making a covering for evil, uh, but that we're living before you in a, in a way that's, that's honest and above reproach, that we would honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. And Father, that we would recognize that even though we're called to be free, that we're bond slaves of God. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. It was the War of uh, 1812. It was a conflict between the United States and the United Kingdom and uh, Great Britain and Ireland. Uh, the British Navy was stopping and seizing American ships out at sea and forcing American citizens to become subjects of Great Britain, even if they claimed to be American. Uh, the British were also preventing the expansion of U.S. territory uh, by giving aid to various Indian tribes that opposed the U.S. And in 1812, we went to war with England. Uh, it was during this war that British troops attacked and captured Washington, D.C., and on August 24th, 1814, the British looted and set fire to a number of public buildings, including the White House and the U.S. Capitol building. And uh, having defeated Washington, the next target was Baltimore. And on September 12th, 1814, the battle for Baltimore began when the British landed at North Point, uh, which is a peninsula that overlooks uh, the Patapsco River and where Fort Howard is located. Uh, at the same time, they planned to attack the Baltimore Waterway, uh, the Inner Harbor, uh, Baltimore's Inner Harbor past Fort McHenry. And just before the British bombarded Fort McHenry, there was an American lawyer who sailed out to one of the British ships that were out at sea to negotiate uh, the release of a number of prisoners, uh, one who was a, a physician uh, who was being held there by the British, having no idea uh, that the plan was to attack Baltimore on the next day. Uh, but during his negotiation, he learned that the British were about to bombard Fort McHenry, and he was forced to helplessly watch the whole thing from a British ship. Fort McHenry was attacked relentlessly for 25 hours straight, and because all of the lights were ordered to be out in Baltimore, the only light that could be seen from Baltimore was the light of the rocket's red glare and the bombs that bursted in the air over Fort McHenry to show that the American flag was still hoisted. And the British eventually realized that after 25 hours that they would be unable to take Fort McHenry because our defense was too strong. Thank you, Baltimore. And Francis, Francis Scott Key, who was so inspired, the, the, the lawyer, was so inspired by the defense of Fort McHenry that he wrote a couple of lines in a poem called The Defense of Fort McHenry, which was later set to music and because of its popularity became our national anthem, Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave or the land of the free and the home of the brave. And as Americans, we find freedom is one of our highest values. We march for freedom. We fight for freedom. We're even willing to die for freedom. You know, give me liberty or give me death are some of the famous words spoken by Patrick Henry as he urged Virginia to, to pass a resolution to release troops for the Revolutionary War. Uh, we want freedom from oppressive governments, from tyranny, and there's something that's right about that desire to be free. We, we weren't meant to be tyrannized. We were meant to live joyfully under the rule 
of our Creator and those that submit themselves to Him. That was the design. And before we jump back into 1 Peter, I thought a historical perspective would be helpful for us because I'm not sure if we've thought much about the origin of government and why it exists in the first place. Where where did all of this begin? What was the need for for government? And for that, we have to turn back to the beginning, the the book of beginnings, which is the book of of Genesis. Uh, The Bible begins with those uh, simple words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Those are uh, 10 words in English, seven words in Hebrew that refute all of uh, man's uh, false philosophies. The origin and the meaning of the world is all described there in the first verse of the first chapter of Genesis. And it also demonstrates that man is not independent from his creator. God is the universal ruler and we all have an obligation to him. In uh, Psalm 100 and verse 3, it says, know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. Uh, We've been created, the Bible says, for him in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16. God is the one who has the right to rule over all of us. Psalm 47 verse 2 says that the Lord most high is to be feared, a great king, listen to this, over all the earth. God is the king over the earth. Psalm 103 verse 19 says the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over who? Over all, over everybody. God is the universal ruler of all the earth. And as much as you might want to squirm and and fidget and protest and resent that rule, there's nothing that you can do to ultimately get away from it. Because you can't escape the fact that you're still a creature that's been created by God. In Revelation 4 and verse 11, it says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. And even though we may not acknowledge it, we're all accountable for it, because Romans uh, chapter 1 and verse 19 says, That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. It's inescapable. You can't escape the knowledge of God. And even our conscience reveals and convicts us of the knowledge of God. And that he has the right to rule over us. Which is why scripture says that we'll have no excuse on the day of judgment. God is the universal ruler over all the earth and we're all accountable to him. And we're to bring him honor. And God exercises his rule over all the earth by delegating authority to mankind. Take a look at Genesis 1 and verse 26. It says, on the sixth day that God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here mankind was created to rule. The the word subdue there. It means to dominate, to bring under control. Uh, The the word for rule means to to govern, to to be over, to have dominion. But it's clear that mankind was never meant to be the ultimate ruler. He was to live with authority while he's under authority, which is made clear by Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16 and 17, where the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die which demonstrates that man is not to be a law unto himself. You have somebody that's over you. I've given you the responsibility to rule, but don't forget that you're still accountable to me. And God established 
and order within mankind as well, uh, as far as the, the rule uh, within uh, uh, the, 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 the creation that he had made. Uh, first of all, within the home, uh, God established that the, the husband and father would be the head of the home, and that's by God's design. Now, Eve was created to be Adam's helper, not his head. In Genesis 2 and verse 18, made the helper that was suitable for him. Uh, she was created to assist Adam in fulfilling his God-given mandate to assume, uh, 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 to assist him and, and not to, to lead. And uh, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 9 lets us know that woman was made for the, the man's sake. It was to come alongside of Adam to help, to assist. And Eve would have fulfilled this vital supporting role uh, for Adam and his mandate to subdue the earth as a companion as, and as a complement to Adam. And the children and the children's children who were born to them were to be an extension of God's given mad mandate to, to Adam. And uh, I say that because it was Adam who was commanded by God to be fruitful and fill the earth and subdue it. That was Adam's mandate. But it would have been through his children that that would have actually been fulfilled. So Adam is giving this headship even over his wife and his children to fulfill the mandate that God had given to him. So it would have been this global family organized underneath Adam as the head of families, Eve as the mother of all living, joyfully and voluntarily cooperating with one another, subduing the earth in obedience to God's command. That was the original design and society would have been organized around the family as they sought to please God and fulfill his will. But that joyful cooperation was ruined by the fall and the, the first offspring of Adam and Eve, instead of filling the earth with righteousness and subduing it, did anything but cooperate. Cain becomes the, the first murderer. Uh, the first society was already in a tailspin. By the time we get to Genesis 6 and verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It was wickedness that was filling the earth rather than God's righteous rule. So God picks one family out of the cesspool, appoints him as the new head of the families, which was Noah. After the flood, Noah and his three sons become the new heads of society. And according to Genesis chapter 10 and verse 32, it says, These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies by their nations. And out of these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. But there was an additional authority that was given to Noah and his sons. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, and I want you to see this with me. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6. There's this additional authority that's given to Noah and to his sons, and this is the first time this kind of instruction is given. Look at Genesis 9 and verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. In order to restrain the wickedness in society, not only would there be the pain of, of conscience and the discipline of a father, there would also be the threat of death. Life was required for life. And it's right here that we find that society would be ordered and controlled by what one author calls the right of retri retributive justice. When, when your conscience won't control you and your parental authority won't control you and respect for authority is not enough to stop you, you will be turned over to society and even death in order for you to be held under control. Order has to be maintained. Voluntary cooperation with one another, submission to God, that was the original design. 
But because of the sinfulness of man that ran rampant, human governments were instituted to keep mankind in check. Robert uh, Culver, in a helpful book on civil government, says, God recognized the incurable sinfulness of the heart of man, and by covenant with the sinful race, he established a stronger basis for societal control. If sin's violence to man cannot be kept in check by voluntary controls, then God in his grace would control it by coercive means. The world would never again be destroyed as it had been because disorder would be brought under control in another way. The violent tendencies of man would now be put under such restraint that they would never again get so far out of hand. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, spoke along the same lines and he said, except for the presence of civil government, the world would have quickly destroyed itself. And Robert Haldane, a Scottish pastor and theologian of the 1700s, wrote a three-volume commentary on the book of Romans. And he says this, that the institution of civil government is dispensation, is got, is a dispensation of mercy. And its existence is so indispensable that the moment it ceases under one form, it reestablishes itself in another. The world ever since the fall has been in such a state of corruption and depravity that it would be better to live among the beast of the forest than in a human society. As soon as its restraints are removed, man shows himself in his real character. When there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. You know what he's saying? I'd be better off living in a jungle with the wild beasts than to live amongst the people who have no rules. I'd be better off. I'd be safer. You know, at least the animals are predictable. As I've mentioned before, when you read the book of Judges, you'll read some of the most vile, the most wicked the most disturbing stories that you'll ever read about. And this is what men did to men. I mean, I mean, chopping people up and putting them in the mail. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that men did when they thought they could do whatever they wanted to do. But right here in Genesis 9 is the first mandate for some form of government. There must be control. There must be some kind of authority. And throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, we see families and relatives that eventually become cities and countries and it all comes from right here. The, the, the creation of society all came from right here. And in Genesis 12, God selects out a, another man, Abraham, and says, I'm going to make out of you a nation. And from you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that's what became the beginning of the nation of Israel. And after the Exodus, God organized them into a, a nation. As we know that Israel disobeyed God, was banished to the other nations, and there was a restoration that was promised for, for them, and that restoration hasn't happened yet. Uh, but we know that when that does occur, uh, that our king from heaven will return, and that's the kingdom that we're a part of, that we're citizens of that kingdom. And until that kingdom comes to earth, we still remain citizens of, of heaven while we live in this, this strange place with uh, rulers that uh, don't really follow God's laws, but it's still what God has constructed and designed to keep mankind under control. Because if we didn't have anybody, if we didn't have any control, nobody over us, uh, this world would be no place to live. And that's, that's the kind of reason, uh, what we find through Scripture on the, the reason for government, for human government. And we're called to live faithfully under that human government. We're to look at that government as a blessing from God. Regardless of, of what country you live in, to, to look at government as an institution of God, as a blessing for God, for the flourishment of mankind. That's, that's what we have. The flourishing of mankind is, is human government. That's the gift from God for our own protection. So what's our responsibility to the government? 
to submit humbly, to pray earnestly, to live godly, to serve quietly, to worship faithfully. We're to, we're to pray for those who are above us, to submit to them. But the question that I have for you today is, is what do I do if and when government collides with the commands of God? What does, what does God want me to do? What if my obedience to Scripture is in conflict with my obedience to the government? Does the, the church ever have to say no to government in order to say yes to God? And the answer in limited cases is yes. It's clear that in some cases we must say no to government in order to say yes to God. And it's clear from the commands of of Scripture and the implications of Scripture that our conscience is bound to the Word of God. So what I want to do before we jump back into 1 Peter is just to give you five nuanced responses of the church when the commands of God and the commands of government are in opposition to one another. And I've been uh, greatly helped by uh, Pastor Matt White of uh, Belcroft Bible Church and thinking these things through. And uh, an outline that he provided was extremely helpful, so I'm giving him credit for that here. Uh, but here's where our response, uh, how our response should be when our response um, uh, to government uh, collides with our obedience uh, to, to the Lord himself. So, so here it is, five, five ways that, that we should respond to the commands of, of God when the commands of government are in opposition to that command. Number one, continue. Number two, appeal. Number three, confront. Number four, flee. And number five, accept, okay? And these responses don't necessarily happen in, in order, uh, but as you study Scripture, you realize that uh, there's different situations that demand different responses, but, but th- these are the responses that we find in Scripture. Number one, quietly continue. Continue which seems to be the most common form of civil disobedience. Believers simply continue to obey God without any public appeal or confrontation to the authorities. We simply do what we've always done. An example of that might be uh, what the Hebrew midwives did in Exodus chapter 1 when they quietly defied Pharaoh's orders to have the Hebrew babies killed. It's like, well, we've, we've always delivered babies. We're not going to stop now. We're going to continue to do what we've done. This is what Jonathan did multiple times in defying his father's authority when he wanted David killed. It's like, well, I'm going to be his friend like I've, I've always been. You know, I'm not going to seek to kill him. It's what uh, uh, Michal did when she defied her father Saul, who wanted to king, uh, kill David as well. And in some ways, it's also what the apostles did. And when they were miraculously freed from prison, and instead of going to the, to the state, to the governing officials and saying, hey, do we have permission to go back out and preach? They just went back out and did what they were doing in the first place. Again, this is the most normal response of civil disobedience. Now, for example, this is also what we see in Daniel chapter 3 with those, uh, the three Hebrew boys, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, uh, who you, you'd know as uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and, uh, and Abednego. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar set up that 90-foot-high golden image of himself, commanded everybody to bow, and these three men paid no attention to the decree of the king. Actually, Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't have even known that they were doing anything unless somebody pointed them out. But, but again, they just did what they always did. I, I, I haven't bowed before. I'm not going to bow now. And I'm not going to ask permission not to bow. I'm just not going to bow. And the final example is uh, Daniel in chapter 6, Daniel chapter 6, where he just quietly continues to pray even after there was an injunction from the king that nobody should be prayed to but him for 30 days, for a whole month. David just... Daniel just quietly continued to pray before the Lord with his windows open facing Jerusalem as he always did. He had conviction 
And uh, what the, the king said wasn't going to, to sway him from what he was doing. Number two, humbly appeal. And giving an appeal is where you, you plead your biblical case before government. Uh, this is the kind of uh, uh, thing that Paul did when he pleads his case before Felix and Festus. You see another example of that when uh, Moses goes before Pharaoh uh, to ask for the people to be let go in Exodus chapter 5. And at first it's just saying, hey, this is what we need to do. We need to go out so we can worship the Lord. He wasn't telling them what you have to do. It's like, hey, this is just what we have to do. Like, like God commands us to do this. You have a, another example in uh, Daniel 1 where uh, Daniel asked to be uh, freed from the, the kind of diet that was required in, in Babylon. It's like, you know, hey, I, I, I can't eat what you're offering me to, to eat. He wasn't, he wasn't uh, 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 seeking to get out of anything else other than what contradicted with the, the word of, of God. And even as a, as a teenager, which is remarkable, and uh, hopefully the, the, the teenagers here you know, are listening up because, I mean, Daniel was, was, was in his, his early ages when he was uh, uh, defying the, the king's authority because he was so committed to Scripture uh, that he wouldn't defile himself with the king's meat. So we quietly continue. We humbly appeal, make an appeal. Number three, we respectfully confront. And this is obviously taking it a, a step higher, you know, rather than just quietly obeying and you know, maybe making an appeal, it's, it's actually to confront the people who are over us to say that what you're doing is wrong. Uh, this could be the, uh, the response that the, the uh, apostles gave to the Jewish authorities. And in chapter 4, they're told that they couldn't speak about the, the kingdom of, of God. But in chapter 5, they, they actually confront the religious leaders and say that, but you are the ones who actually put our Messiah to death. So it, it goes beyond just respectfully uh, uh, appealing to actually confronting the people who are withholding you from doing what the Lord has called you to do. You also see that kind of example with uh, John the Baptist and uh, uh, before Herod, uh, Paul uh, before Felix and, and Festus, uh, where he spoke to them directly. We see the, the examples of, again, the, uh, the, the Hebrew boys as, as well as they uh, answer the, the king. You know, it's not just quiet at that point. It's like actually confronting the king. You know, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you've set up. Just this kind of bold courage uh, in, the, in the face of, of even death. And after that, respectfully confronting, the fourth nuanced response that we see in Scripture is personally fleeing. And this is obviously when your life is in danger uh, because of uh, uh, your commitment to the, to the Lord. Uh, this is exactly what Paul did when he fled from Damascus. He was let down in a basket. When David ran for his life uh, before Saul, uh, when Paul uh, fleed uh, from Iconium and, and Lystra, when uh, Peter uh, left the, the jail cell, he didn't ask any questions, he just, he just fled. Uh, so we have this, this response of, of fleeing from persecution. It's the same thing that Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, that if they persecute you in one city to go to another. And then the, the last response is that we faithfully accept. And this is the, the final response. After humbly appealing doesn't work, respectfully confronting doesn't work, you can't flee. The last response is uh, faithfully accepting the consequences of obeying the Lord. It's the, the believer's attitude uh, that says that, uh, that it doesn't matter uh, what the consequences might be, uh, that I'm, I'm, I'm commanded to, to serve my God. It doesn't mean that we don't give up any right to appeal, but that was the kind of response that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. If, if I go to the furnace, I go to the furnace. The response that Daniel had, if I go to the, the lion's den, I go to the lion's den. 
John the Baptist, if I'm beheaded, I'm beheaded. It's the disciples who were sent out as, as sheep among wolves. Stephen, who was stoned for his faith. The apostles who, who faced beatings because they were committed to Christ. And in the face of opposition, persecution, we can stand up because the Bible lets us know that we really are free. Even though it might look like we're under the dominion of the, the world around us, we really are free. And this is where I want you to turn back to First Peter. Back to First Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter 2, we're described as both free men and slaves at the same time. And it's, it's really a, a beautiful analogy. And if you can really get this down, it clears up so much of the confusion when it comes to how we're to live as aliens in a foreign land. And what the Bible lets us know is that we really are free. Look back at uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 again. Look at verse 16. It says, Act as free men. And do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. We're both free and bound, but we are free. And and what what, what does it mean when it says that we're free? We're actually free in relationship to this current world. That's what what Peter's talking about. I mean, there's there's a number of ways that the Bible talks about our our freedom. We're we're freed from continuing the habits of our old life, 1 Peter 1.18, where it talks about uh, we're redeemed not with perishable things, from our futile way of life. We're, we're freed from a futile way of life. The Bible lets us know that we're free from the eternal consequences of our, of our sins. You know, praise God for that. And we, we heard a wonderful testimony earlier about being freed from the, the consequences of sin. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're free from the Mosaic law and its condemnation. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 7 lets us know that you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And then later on lets us know that we're children of the free woman, referring to the promise of grace. We're free from the law. And we'll also one day be set free from the corruption of, of sin in our flesh. As uh, Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 7, O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through, our, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. He talks about this freedom that he'll eventually have when we'll be set free from this corruption of the flesh. But in this context here, we're talking about freedom from civil authority. And in one sense, and in a very real sense, we are free from civil authority. And I know it's an imperfect analogy, but like I mentioned, if I was you know, visiting France or some other country and they start talking about you know, what they're going to pass and you know, what they want for their citizens. It doesn't disturb me too much because I know that I don't really belong here. Like, like this isn't primarily for me. This, this isn't my home. I'm just passing through, right? And we are here on this earth as people who are just passing through. We're not home yet. And we're to live as those who are free, as free. In the immediate context, it would look back to, to doing what is right as free, doing what is right as free men. We're, we're, we're subject to the will of of God, not subject to the civil government in that sense. But what this verse also lets us know is that submission to government is not our ultimate submission. We're we're free, but we're also bound to Jesus Christ. We're bound to God. We're we're bond slaves, the scripture says, Uh, down in uh, verse 16 again, uh, to use it as bond slaves of God, or to use our freedom as those who are slaves, those who are bound. 
So the freedom that we have is not untethered and free-flowing freedom to do what we want. In Romans 6, verse 18, it says, Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So I'm not to use my freedom in order to serve myself, but in order to serve God. And that's the question that you want to ask in the exercise of freedom. What am I being free to do? Am I, am I free to serve myself or am I really freed up to serve God? Is that what I'm after? Is that what I'm wanting to do? Because the Bible lets us know that we're free to be holy. It was uh, Augustine who said to serve God is perfect freedom. So we can't use our, our freedom as some kind of camouflage or cover for, for evil to hide behind. And uh, that's the kind of thing that uh, the Pharisees tried to, tried to do in uh, Mark chapter 7 uh, when they said that they couldn't provide for their parents because, you know, hey, whatever I would have given you is, is dedicated to the Lord. I can't really help you out. That, that was to use freedom as some kind of cloak for evil. You know, I'm, I'm trying to escape my responsibility. So, so we're, we're free, but we're not free to do evil, to do what's evil. And we demonstrate our submission to God in a way that honors those that are around us. And as you look at verse 17, there's really an order. And this is really our demonstration of our our freedom before the Lord. Like, how does that look? How does submission to God look? What does it look like to be a bond slave of God in relationship to those around us? In verse 17, we have this priority that's recognized here. And uh, verse 17, just to read it for you, it says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And some commentators, they try to make that initial statement to honor all people to be this kind of summary statement of everything else that follows. But that doesn't work for a number of reasons. Number one, it would make the last statement unnecessary uh, because it's just a repetition of the statement of the first, you know, honor all people, honor the king. You know, what's the difference between the honor up front and the honor in the back? And also, it would ignore the different responsibilities that we have to God and to the brotherhood. You know, there's something different that Peter's trying to communicate here. And it would also place God on the same level as people. You know, if honor all people is a summation of everything that follows, it would put God in the category of all people. And that's definitely not where he belongs. So what's the best way to look at verse 17 is as a chiasm, which may not mean a whole lot to you, but it was a device that writers would use to try to point you towards what's most important. You know, like the, the bookends on the, on the front and the back pointed towards what was in the middle. And uh, what we're presented with here are these two parallel truths about honoring all people and honoring the king or the emperor. And what it points to is what's in between, what's in the middle. So it's written in a way that puts an emphasis on God and the brotherhood. And what we're presented with here is that there's an honor, first of all, that we're to give to everybody. There's an honor that we're to give to all men because all men are created in the image of God. Uh, There's people who are to be recognized with a special honor, you know, honor to whom honor is due. Uh, Revelation, uh, Romans 13 and verse 7 speaks about, you know, we're to honor our father and mother, we're to honor widows, we're to honor those who are in the body of Christ, we're to honor our masters, we're to honor those who are uh, uh, leadership in the, in the church, the elders who rule well, we're to give honor, we're not to belittle them, to mock them, to dismiss them, we're to respect them, and we're also to give honor to the king, those who are in authority over us. And that's what Paul demonstrated for us. When, uh, if you remember when Paul was struck in Acts 23, and he immediately responded back, and they said, you know, is that the way that you speak to the high priest? And he says, oh, I, I didn't know. There was like a certain honor that was given to those in authority. 
But the focus of this verse is really focused on what's in between. There's, there's an honor that we're to give to all, that's true. But there's an even higher priority on loving the brotherhood and fearing God than there is on honoring people or honoring the king. And I really hope that you get that. Because my question for you is, have you made loving your brothers and fearing God your main priority during the days that we live in? Is that what's become like your top priority? Is that the emphasis of your life? Have you prioritized loving the brotherhood, which is the body of believers? Because honestly, I'm I'm concerned for some of you who find much more alignment with the government or with culture than you do with your brothers or sisters in Christ. And there's there's good and godly people who have different ways of uh, dealing with the events of the last year, year and a half or more, dealing with COVID, dealing with the elections, dealing with racial tensions. And some people have been more willing to stand against their brothers or sisters in Christ than to stand with their brothers and sisters in Christ because of a greater emphasis on the love of the brotherhood. And I'm not saying that we don't have differences, and I'm not saying that we don't even have strong differences. But when I'm willing to stand against my brother or sister in Christ, and even consider them an enemy in order to align with the world, I have totally missed the emphasis of this verse. And I can find all kinds of believers or unbelievers who agree with me on all kinds of things, right? I can find unbelievers who agree with me on politics, on healthcare, on civil rights. I can find all kinds of unbelievers that agree with me on all that kind of stuff. But what I will not find with an unbeliever is a willingness to line up with me and agree that Jesus is Lord and to line up at the foot of the cross. If you think I'm wrong, make an appeal through Scripture. But if you're not loving the the brotherhood, what you need to hear is the clear emphasis in this verse is loving one another. We love one another here in the body of Christ. It's actually been observed that out of all the commands to love people, out of all the commands that we have in the New Testament to love people, that there are only two times out of all those commands that are directed towards unbelievers. Every other time we're commanded to love, it's a command to love the body of Christ. It's a command to love one another, your brothers and sisters. So my question is, do you make a priority of loving the brotherhood? Number two, is there a, is there a kind of fear in your heart that's directed towards God alone? And the, the last year and a half has been filled with all kinds of fears, right? Fears about government leadership, fears about discrimination, fears about viruses and illnesses and death. But how much do we hear about the fear of God? In Isaiah 8, verse 12, it says, you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. The kind of fear that we have should be different than the kind of fear that the world has. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 5, Jesus says, I'll tell you who to fear. Fear him. Fear him. Deuteronomy 6, 13 says, you shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. In Deuteronomy 8, 6, it says, Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. In Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13, it says, The conclusion when all has been heard is this, Fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. And my question for you is, has that been primary in your mind, the fear of God? That, that it should scare me, terrify me, that I would be out of line with the commands of God. And if I'm seeking to be in line with the world, with the society around me, and be out of line with God, that that should terrify me. That in my heart, that I should have this 
this revulsion against doing anything that would distance myself from God. I have a fear of him, a fear of him above all things. And we seek for him to, to guide our, our steps, to, to guide our, our paths. First Peter chapter 2 in verses 13 to 17 give us a, a clear command regarding submission to, to government. Uh, but it also contains within it uh, this emphasis and priority on our submission to God and our love for one another. And uh, brothers and sisters, it's, it's my prayer that, that that's what we're, we're taking to heart uh, as we think through all these different issues. As, uh, uh, there's, there's much to, to think about, much to think through. I pray that as we uh, think about all these things that we'd apply the principles of Scripture and uh, that more importantly, uh, uh, that as we uh, think about submission to government, uh, that we would also uh, understand uh, that it's more of a priority than even our submission to government is uh, what have you done with your brothers and sisters in Christ and how have you responded before the Lord who is your God, who has the kingdom that is above and over all, amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you, God, so much for uh, your word and uh, we pray that you would use it, that you would uh, uh, help us to submit ourselves uh, to it. And Father, I, I thank you, Lord, that, that you are the God who is over all. And Father, that ultimately our submission is to you. And that one day this, this world, this world that, that we live in and the, the society that we, we live in and the governments, Lord, that we live under will one day be taken over by uh, Jesus Christ. As Jesus Christ comes and the governments rest on his shoulders, as the kingdoms of this earth become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, uh, Father, we look forward to that day. And uh, Father, I pray that we would expectantly look to the heavens for our Savior to appear and that we would be like the Apostle John who says, uh, even so quickly, come Lord Jesus. Now, Father, we look forward uh, to the return of your Son. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.